Thank you, Pastor. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Well, it's been uh, great to be here. Thank you for your hospitality. Uh, your pastor and I have been friends uh, since long before he came here. We've not seen each other since he came here. Uh, but it's, we go back that far, and so it's been an honor to be here. In fact, I was just thinking, we've been working on this for two years. Uh, we set it up in the fall of 2019. I was to be here last year. Something happened. I can't remember what it was uh, <laughs> worldwide. Um, and so we had to postpone it uh, and then reschedule for now. So we've been working on this for, for two years. It's been a light to finally be here. And you've been great. Uh, your pastor has been so hospitable. Everyone that I've worked with, and especially those that have been uh, taking me back and forth where I need to go each day. Uh, so thank you uh, to everyone for the hospitality of your uh, eagerness to hear the Word of God and the teaching. So thank you uh, for that. Uh, I, I realized this morning how tight my connection is going to be uh, in, in making my flight. And so uh, between services, I, I changed clothes, and um, into my traveling clothes, I won't get home until about 12 hours from now if we're on time. But if my mother in heaven were to see me preaching now, she might come down and get me. <laughs> my mother did not believe the gospel could be preached except in a coat and tie, just like Jesus and Paul. Uh, and in fact, I'm concerned my boss, Dr. Moeller, might even see me. Uh, Dr. Moeller doesn't even own a pair of blue jeans. And uh, so please don't tweet out uh, any, any pictures of this. But I have an arrangement with Delta Airlines that if I'm not there when it's time to go there, to feel, feel free to leave without me. And uh, they usually take me up on that. So I, I'm, I'm a bit concerned, so I'm going to leave as soon as I preach and hand them the microphone. I hope if I forget, you guys chase me down, or otherwise I'll just add it to my collection. Um, and I'm packed, and Josh is going to take me to the airport. So... I'm sorry for that. Thank you for accommodating your order of service. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> um, your sins will find you out, the Bible says. So, um, <laughs> so uh, thanks for accommodating the service so that I preach a little earlier than you normally would, just all the adjustments you've made to accommodate me, so thank you. Uh, if you're not on a flight pretty early um, from a mountain time, uh, and you're going back to Eastern time with two flights and a layover, you just, you just don't make it home So uh, in, on the same day. Well, in the first chapter of the last book of the Bible, uh, The Apostle John writes the prologue to the book, uh, explaining in the first verse that what he is writing is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Next, he greets the seven churches who were to be the first recipients of this letter. And in verses 4 to 8, he gives a compact Christology. In other words, telling us briefly who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But then, from verse 9 to the end of the chapter, John writes about the first things he heard and that he saw on that unforgettable Lord's Day, when as a prisoner, 
banished to the Roman penal colony island of Patmos because of his Christian ministry and his Christian beliefs. The resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ appeared to John. John says it all began when he heard a voice behind him. And he tells us that what he heard. And then he writes in verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am, the live, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I want to focus our attention on one part of what John saw. Normally, like your pastor, I would do an exposition of a whole paragraph or kind of thought unit, but I'm going to do something that I normally don't do today. I want to look at one part of one verse. In the second half of verse 14, John says this about the face of Jesus. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Now this phrase is repeated almost verbatim in two other places in the chapter, uh, in the book, and if you're taking notes, you might want to jot these references down. So we have here John uh, Revelation 1 14 then in Revelation 2 the very next chapter verse 18 it says the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and then the verse we'll turn to at the end Revelation 19 12 his eyes are like a flame of fire when I've read these passages I've always envisioned this scene in the fiery eyes of Jesus as fierce and fearsome fierce and purity and gaze and terrifying to look at fierce and, and, and purity judgment and no wonder I thought John fell at his feet as though dead it, it must have felt like two lasers burning through his brain who could endure such a terrifying holy stare and, and I think in one sense it probably was like that to John because remember he is in the spirit, which is an interesting phrase in and of itself. Um, his body would have been on the island of Patmos. Maybe he was asleep, I don't know, whatever. His, if you'd seen him, his body would have been there. But he was in the spirit in the heavenly realms and able to see and hear just like when you dream, you see, you hear, but only he, his spirit was actually with the Lord. But nevertheless, he's still in an unglorified state. He's still imperfect. 
And when he sees the eyes of Jesus and his face shining like the sun, well, uh, I, I think that there's something in my observation that it must have been you know, almost terrifying to see that holy stare when you're in an unholy, unglorified state. But I've come to think of those eyes a little differently. When I think of them in terms of how we will see them in heaven, from a perspective, I think it's more full, a, a better one, and one that is based on an understanding over the whole of Scripture. To describe something of that, I think the, the best comparison I can suggest, though certainly limited in its own way, is what we experience when we're gazing into a fire. Yeah, maybe logs in a fireplace, maybe a campfire. And we find ourselves just completely transfixed, don't we, by those undulating, mesmerizing flames. Why does it do that? We, we all know that experience. Everybody says, yeah, we, we, we know what you're talking about. We, we stare into it and you sort of get lost in it. But I ask myself, why does it do that to us? What is it about a fire that does that? Surely it, it is the living and ever-changing beauty of it. Yes, it's beautiful. A still photograph could show that a fire is beautiful. But it's nothing like the living beauty. And the ever-changing beauty of an actual fire. A living and changing beauty. Dancing with endless varieties of beauty. And we can become so entranced by this living and ever-changing beauty that sometimes we have to just intentionally blink our concentration away in order to focus on anything else around us because it's so magnetic, it's so... It, it, it's so mesmerizing. Have you ever noticed that a fire in a gas logs fireplace doesn't have quite the same effect? Yes, it's beautiful. Yes, it's, it's, it's relaxing, but it doesn't evoke quite the same entrancement in, in that a wood burner does. Does it? Why is it? It's because it's a, I mean, without even thinking, you, you pick up the pattern, don't you? You don't even realize it, but very quickly, without even trying, you pick up the pattern. A repetitive pattern, a repetitive beauty doesn't have quite the same effect as a living and ever-changing beauty. In a gas logs fire, it's repetitive because of the consistent flow of the fuel and the fixed hardware of the, of the fireplace logs. The result of that is this repetitive beauty, and a repetitive beauty just doesn't dazzle quite as much as a living, ever-changing beauty like we see in the eyes of Jesus, whose eyes, John says, were like a flame of fire, eyes aflame with a living and ever-changing beauty. Those are the two things I want us to look at, looking first at the idea that his eyes are a living beauty, the living beauty of those eyes like a flame of fire. All three references in Revelation say the eyes of Jesus are like a flame of fire. What does that tell us? Well, I think it, more, it means more than just that they're bright and shining. 
when the Bible wants to do that, it typically uses the comparison of the sun or just bright light. For example, at the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew 17, verse 2, we're told he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. In fact, in verse 16 of the passage that's before us in chapter 1, it says of Jesus, His face was like the sun shining in full strength. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. But His eyes weren't just bright and shining. They were like a flame of fire. Just as you try to even imagine, as you think of His face shining like the sun in full strength, what that would be like. And yet, in the midst of a glory and brilliance of the sun in its full strength, he could still see eyes like a flame of fire. He had looked into those eyes many, many times on earth, thousands of times perhaps, but this is different. This is different. This time, he says his eyes were like a flame of fire. So, as I've already noted He's telling us that the eyes of Jesus are fire-like in that they are a living beauty. Not just beautiful, a living beauty. There's movement and life, a flame in the eyes of Jesus. Now, in addition to using the illustration of a wood-burning fire, I thought about using the illustration of a kaleidoscope to illustrate the, the living beauty. But see, that's the problem. While there's a beauty, it's not a living beauty. Those pieces of glass and colored material that make up the shapes in a kaleidoscope aren't living. But in the fiery eyes of Jesus, there's this endless dance of beauty in life. In them is a, a living beauty. So when the, the, the most overwhelming, amazing, transform, transformative moment of your existence occurs and you look into the eyes of Jesus with your real physical but glorified eyes we won't be terrified unlike John we won't be terrified for what we will see is beauty a living active moving fire-like beauty we won't want to turn our eyes away from his nor want him to avert his eyes from us Rather, we want it to gaze into the living beauty of those fire-like eyes forever. His eyes will transfix our eyes infinitely more than the most beautiful fire can, for we will be looking into the fullness of all beauty. We will be looking into the eyes of the creator of beauty and into the eyes of the one who created our eyes and looking into the one who will see us as beautiful. There's going to be beauty all over heaven, isn't there? And it's going to astonish us. Jonathan Edwards, I mentioned this weekend, called by one edition of Encyclopedia Britannica, the greatest mind America has ever produced. He pastored in Massachusetts in the first half of the 1700s. And he wrote a sermon that I believe is the most remarkable thing I've ever read outside the Bible. In his late 20s, he wrote a sermon called, Nothing Upon Earth Can Represent the Glories of Heaven. 
And I remember reading it, and there were times I just leaned back in my desk, and I, I, like Paul, whether in the body, I don't know, or out of the body, I don't know, I was just catatonic with wonder at the profundity of this sermon about how nothing upon earth, there is no comparison, there's no analogy that can begin to convey to us how beautiful and how glorious heaven is and how happy we will be there. And he takes as his starting point the description of one of the most in, insignificant things in heaven. The stuff that will be used to pave the streets we'll walk on. And he says, that is gold. Pure gold. And of a purity so pure that it's transparent. And he reasons from that, if something as insignificant as that is something as unimportant as the material upon which our feet will walk if that is so stunningly beautiful then there are no words to convey how the real beauty of heaven in the living landscape all around us will be in the iridescence of the city in the glorious countenances of of the people of God reflecting the very glory of God there are no words to describe that to us we do not have the ability to comprehend such a beauty. There, you know, there's actually not a lot about heaven in the New Testament and what it's like. We wish there was a lot more. What little is there is overwhelmingly magnificent. But I think one of the reasons is because it's, it's not possible for us to understand even a glimpse of how beautiful it is. Uh, even though we have the God-inspired words of Scripture, they can't convey by words the actual beauty of heaven that we will see, right, with our eyes. There, no matter how accurate the description of a sunset that you see here in a state famous for sunsets, you could all come together and all give your ideas of how to describe it, put it in words, and send it to me in an email, but you well know you could never put in words, not even inspired words, the actual beauty that your eyes will see. And if we can't adequately describe the cascade of color all across the panorama, panorama of the western sky, if we can't describe one of those, then for the Bible to try to put into words the inexpressible beauties of heaven and convey them to limited minds like ours would be like trying to explain algebra to an ant. No amount of clarity in explaining it will make an ant capable of understanding algebra. It's not a matter of clearly communicating. It's the capacity of the one hearing it. And we do not have the capacity to grasp how beautiful heaven is and how happy we will be there. We just can't get it yet. But beyond all the physical beauties of heaven that we will see, we're going to have a beautiful life experience there. That's just what we see, but everything we experience will will be beautiful. But that's not the most glorious and beautiful thing about heaven. It's not going to be the beauties of our experiences of rest or relief or reunion there. I mean, everyone on earth dreams of a time when they can 
rest, right? Without the toil, the fatigue, the frustrations of this world, it's going to be great. But the most glorious thing of heaven is not going to be the relief, relief of our burdens. Everyone in the world dreams of a time like that, don't they? And not even reunion with loved ones who may be there is going to be the very best thing about heaven. As wonderful as that's going to be, as right as it is to look forward to that, but all those desires, ah, I want, I want to, all my frustrations and weariness to end, and I want to lay all my burdens and responsibilities down, and I want to see loved ones that I've not seen for so long. It's right to look forward to all those things, and they are there, but all those longings are universal. Muslims want that. Atheists want that. So the fact that you long for a place you call heaven where all these things are, that is not uniquely Christian. The greatest thing about heaven is not going to be the beauty of the place that we see. It's not going to be the beautiful experiences that we have there. The most beautiful thing about heaven is that Jesus is there. And we will see his face. But to hear some people talk about the place they call heaven, the way they describe it and envision the place, it would be just as wonderful to them. They would be just as content to live there if Jesus never showed up. That's not how a Christian thinks. That's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that the presence of Jesus is what makes heaven to be heaven. We aren't merely taken up to a perfect world of rest and relief and reunion. We may look forward to all those things, as I said, thank God, they are there. But the emphasis is not on that. Seeing Jesus is heaven. Read the book of Revelation. The emphasis there is not about, oh, at last there'll be rest and relief and reunion. It's about Jesus. Everywhere we turn in heaven, everything we see is going to be astonishingly beautiful. Every experience we have is going to be indescribably beautiful. But the most beautiful sight in heaven will be the living beauty of those eyes like a flame of fire. Those eyes like a flame of fire aren't just a living beauty. In them is an ever-changing beauty. Let's think about that now. The ever-changing beauty of the eyes like a flame of fire. That's what mesmerizes our eyes when we stare into a fire, isn't it? Every instant the, the, the flames are fluttering, the glow pulses, and, and the light flickers, and we are drawn in by this ceaseless, ever-changing, non-stop beauty captivating our eyes now in this case to talk about an ever-changing beauty on, on a comparing on a much lesser scale a kaleidoscope actually is a good good analogy here because in a kaleidoscope we do have a a, a changing beauty it's not a living beauty but we do have a changing beauty and somewhat like we see in the Eyes like a flame of fire, there's an ever-changing beauty. But a kaleidoscope's variety is limited to the number of pieces in the instrument. And you can only turn it only a few times before you begin to see the same patterns reappear. But God could make a heavenly kaleidoscope with infinite combinations of beauty. In one sense, he has. In, in the living, physical, divine eyes like a flame of fire and the God-man. 
Jesus Christ. For in his flaming eyes, there are these infinite combinations, infinite combinations of grace and forgiveness and mercy and love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and more infinite combinations of all of these in a living, ever-changing beauty. Who wouldn't want to gaze forever into eyes like that? On earth, though, it's rude, isn't it, to stare into someone's eyes for too long. In fact, it can get pretty creepy. Makes people uncomfortable. But there's one exception, isn't there? The eyes of the one you love and who loves you. There's an exception in that case, isn't there? I don't want to go full Alistair Begg here by using an illustration from the Beatles, but they were on to something when they fantasized in a romantic way about the girl with kaleidoscope eyes. The first time I ever saw Kathy, C-A-F-F-Y, is her name. First time I ever saw Kathy at that church picnic in Fayetteville, Arkansas, during the year I was in law school. The first thing that attracted me were those astonishing blue eyes. And from the first moment I saw them, I wanted to stare at them. And I, I couldn't stop thinking about those eyes. And when I would talk to her, I had to force myself not to just get lost in her eyes, but to just kind of generally look at her face, you know. And in fact, for the first few months, I did creep her out. <laughs> but once she finally fell in love with me, at long last, I had the freedom to gaze into those beautiful blue eyes, but not just because they were beautiful. But now, in those beautiful eyes, there was life and light and love in those eyes. And that's what we see in the ever-changing beauty of the eyes like a flame of fire. When we look into those eyes, looking back, there's light and life and love in those eyes. When we finally, finally look into the kaleidoscopic flames of the eyes of Jesus, into the eyes of the ones one we love more than we love anyone or anything else. Into the eyes of the one who loved us before the foundation of the world. Into the eyes of the one who loved us so much he came for us and gave his life for us. Into the eyes of the one who made our eyes and who made them for the ultimate purpose of looking into his eyes. When we finally look into his eyes, we will see endless beauties, endless varieties of the beauty of his love there. Uh, varieties of divine love we never imagined existed or could exist. And in the loving warmth of those eyes, all your questions, all your doubts about his love for you will melt away forever. In the eyes of Jesus, we will see ineffably beautiful varieties of his love that we could not have endured 
if we were to see them with, with these unprepared eyes. The glory of the beauty would so overwhelm us that like John, we would fall at his feet as though dead. Even now, don't you sometimes gaze at, at a sunset? Just the, the cinematic glory of the panorama all across the sky. And its beauty so overwhelms you that as you take it in, you just sigh at the beauty of the sunset. You ever done that? And it creates an, an, an ache, you might say, in your heart. And sometimes you're moved with the beauty so much you, you almost want to, to cry at such a glorious beauty. And it's evoked by a, a longing is evoked. The beauty just kindles a longing within you. Now, if the beauty of one sunset can do that, imagine the beauty of a thousand sunsets in the eyes like a flame of fire. All these living conflagrations of color in those eyes that if we were to see them now, they might actually so overwhelm us that it would, it would kill us with beauty. Think of that. Killed by beauty. Hearts with such limited capacities as ours could not survive the intensity of so much beauty. C.S. Lewis, in his retelling of the myth of Cupid and Psyche in a book called Till We Have Faces, portrayed something of the power of beauty to evoke longing within us. Think of a Christian's longing to be in heaven and to see Jesus as Psyche explains to her friend saying it was when I was happiest that I longed most. It was on happy days when we were up there on the hills with the wind and the sunshine. Do you remember? The color and the smell and looking across at the mountain in the distance and because it was so beautiful it set me longing, always longing. Somewhere else there must be more of it. Everything seemed to be saying, Psyche, come. But I couldn't, <laughs> not yet anyway, and I didn't know where I was to come to. It almost hurt me. I felt like a bird in a cage when the other birds of its kind are flying home. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to reach the mountain. To find the place where all the beauty comes from. Brothers and sisters, the place we long for, the place where all the beauty comes from is Jesus. He is the creator of beauty. All the beauty in the universe ultimately comes from, from Him. And you will see infinite, endless, ever-changing varieties of beauty when you look into those eyes like a flame of fire. Will the eyes of Jesus be the first thing we see after we take our first breath 
of celestial air? Possibly, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But I do believe the first moment that you look into those eyes like a flame of fire, they will burn away every desire for sin and forever. The first time you see the glorious fire in his eyes, they will ignite every part of your being with a combustion of the glory of God. When your eyes see the flashing fire in his eyes, they will inflame your spirit with the incandescent fullness of the Holy Spirit. The instant you gaze into the luminous brilliance of those eyes like a flame of fire, they will illuminate your mind with a knowledge of him that no amount of earthly study could give. Your first glimpse into those eyes like fire, their gentle radiance will warm your affections for everyone and everything in heaven. As soon as you look into the mesmerizing glow of those eyes like fire, they will soften your heart to a tenderness as gentle and lowly as his heart. You first gaze into the reassurance of those fire-lit eyes, they will melt away every fear you've ever had. As soon as your eyes meet his, the, the soft and holy fire of his love will dry every tear you have ever wept. And the first moment that your eyes, which perhaps only a second before closed in earthly death, open into his eyes, the comfort of the fire within his eyes will evaporate the memory and the mystery of every moment of suffering you have ever endured. And from the first moment you see his eyes, that look alone will make your whole life worth living, no matter how much you suffered up until that moment when you first looked into his eyes. Then, then you will know what inspired David to say in Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forever. And as you continue, <laughs> undistracted, gazing into those mesmerizing flames, eyes like a flame of fire, being drawn in deeper and deeper and deeper into those eyes, you'll finally begin to understand how much he loves you. The light of his eyes will enter every part of his soul, your soul, and the warmth of that pure and holy love will warm every part of your soul. And then the prayer of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3, 18 and 19 will be fulfilled in you because you will finally comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth and know, finally, know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, Paul says, and be filled with the fullness of God. Everything in you, everything in your new body, every atom in your body will answer back to what you see with praise and joy and, and a sense of I was made for this. And you'll be at home with Jesus. 
forever. Now, the last of the three references to the fiery eyes of Jesus, interestingly, is almost at the very end of the Bible. It's in Revelation 19, verse 12. And there it says, with one word difference from the first chapter, it says, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Chapter 1 says his eyes were like a flame of fire. But they weren't just that way 2,000 years ago when Jesus appeared to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. They still are now, and they always will be forevermore. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and you will look into those eyes someday. There is a day, there is an appointed time when you literally will look into his eyes. And if you're among those who've turned their backs, on his beauty and turn instead to the temporary lesser beauties of this world if you're among those who've turned their backs on the beauty of his crucifixion and resurrection as real beauty but tried to make a beautiful life of your own without him when you look into those eyes like a flame of fire it'll be the most terrifying thing you've ever seen for you will see only eyes of judgment and anger and it will be unendurable. But if you're among those who have instead found in him, in the beauty of his crucifixion and resurrection, you found there that to be the most important, the most necessary, the most beautiful thing you ever saw. If you're among those who've done that, when you see those eyes like a flame of fire, they won't be eyes that call you, cause you to cringe and recoil. They will be eyes of welcome that will draw you in. If you're among those who long to look into the eyes like a flame of fire more than you long for anything, you almost ache to see into those eyes like a flame of fire. The day is coming. <laughs> oh, for those of you, brothers and sisters, you, you long so much to see into those eyes that you are willing to give everything. Your soul, your body, your future, everything. That's the most important thing to you, to see his face at long last if that is what you're longing for, so much so it almost hurts you now, the day is coming when you will at last receive the ultimate treasure. At last. The moment everything you've longed for, everything you've wanted, everything you've prayed for will at last arrive. And the Bible describes it this way. At the very end, the very last chapter, Revelation 22, 4. They will see his face. And then you will see for yourself that his eyes are like a flame of fire. Let's pray together.
Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.